Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading. Therefore, get your minds ready for action, being self-disciplined, and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is spirit and must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment to establish our base, which is Jesus Christ. Make sure that we are humble before the authority of the Spirit of God that he would teach us this afternoon. Let's pray. Almighty Father, we thank you this afternoon for your faithfulness, for how richly you display your glory and your mercy to each one of us. And Father, we thank you for this uh, third blessing today, a blessing of gathering together to uh, uh, receive your instruction. And Father, we ask that you would help us to set aside distractions, that your spirit would um, calm our hearts and open them and open our eyes and our ears to uh, hear and see and receive the message that you have uh, for each one of us. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. All right. Before I start the lesson, I, I have a joke. And I'm, I'm almost positive that nobody's going to get offended. And then I have a selection. No, really, I'm almost positive. Then I have a selection I want to read to you about this joke. How do you make the universe eternal and self-existent? Nobody knows? You divide by zero. <laughs> that sounds funny. It sounds stupid. It sounds silly. That's exactly what Albert Einstein did to try and avoid a eternal, static universe. This is uh, from I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, chapter 3. It's just a short selection here. Irritating Facts. It was 1916, and Albert Einstein didn't like where his calculations were leading him. If his theory of general relativity was true, it meant that the universe was not eternal, but had a beginning. Einstein's calculations, indeed, were revealing a definite beginning to all time, all matter, and all space. This flew in the face of his belief that the universe was static and eternal. Einstein later called his discovery irritating. He wanted the universe to be self-existent, not reliant on any outside cause, but the universe appeared to have to be one giant effect. In fact, Einstein so disliked the implications of general relativity, a theory that is now proven accurate to five decimal places, that he introduced a cosmological constant, which some have since called a fudge factor, into his equations in order to show that the universe is static and to avoid an absolute beginning. But Einstein's fudge factor didn't fudge for long. In 1919, British cosmolo uh, cosmologist Arthur Eddington conducted an experiment during a solar eclipse with, which confirmed that general relativity was indeed true. The universe wasn't static, but had a beginning. Like Einstein, Eddington was, wasn't happy with the implications. He later wrote, Philosophically, the notion of a beginning of the present order of nature is repugnant to me. I should like to find a genuine loophole. By 1922, Russian mathematician Alexander Friedman had officially exposed Einstein's fudge factor as an algebraic error. Incredibly, in his quest to avoid a beginning, to the great Einstein had divided by zero, something even schoolchildren know is a no-no. Meanwhile, Dutch astronomer William de Sitter 
had uh, found that general relativity required the universe to be expanding. And in 1927, the expanding of the universe was actually observed by astronomer Edwin Hubble, uh, namesake of the space telescope. Looking through the 100-inch telescope at California's Mount Wilson Observatory, Hubble discovered a redshift in the light from every observable galaxy, which meant that those galaxies were moving away from us. In other words, general relativity was again confirmed. The universe appears to be expanding from a single point in the distant past. In 1929, Einstein made a pilgrimage to Mount Wilson to look through Hubble's telescope for himself. What he saw was irrefutable. The observational evidence showed that the universe was indeed expanding as general relativity had predicted. With his uh, uh, cosmological constant now completely crushed by the weight of the evidence against it, Einstein, Einstein could no longer support his wish for an eternal universe. He subsequently described the cosmological constant as the greatest blunder of my life, and he redirected his efforts to find the box top of the puzzle. That's something uh, particular about this book. Uh, They talk about the box top and putting the puzzle uh, together from the picture on the box top that the puzzle comes in. Einstein said that he wanted to know how God created the world. I'm not interested in this or that phenomenon, in the spectrum of this or that element. I want to know his thought. The rest are details. Interesting uh, change of uh, thinking there, but not a complete change of thinking. Although Einstein said that he believed in a pantheistic God, a God that is the universe, his comments admitting creation and divine thought better describe a theistic God. And as irritating as it may be, his theory of general relativity stands today as one of the strongest lines of evidence for a theistic God. Indeed, general relativity supports what is one of the oldest formal arguments for the existence of a theistic God, the cosmological argument. Now, of course, as an introductory class, I'm not going to take you through the cosmological argument on the surface. We're going to do it through the Word. Um, The reason why I took you through that quote, the reason why I told you that joke to start start it out is because This is um, the same thing that I see in what Nietzsche said. That facts don't make a difference. It's our preference that decides, not facts. That in the face of um, facts for scientists, for atheists, for people who don't believe in God, facts don't mean anything to them. They will uh, completely reject them. As a matter of fact, the majority of scientists will reject any evidence that does not support their hypothesis in order to get at what they desire in their science, which is a a godless uh, universe, uh, a lack of a need for any god. But as we look at the scriptures to begin to understand God, we're going to look at them in the sense of how they tell us that a creator exists. If you think about various things that you see in your life. If you think about a building, you know that building had a builder, an architect. Somebody drew up plans and put that building together. If you find a watch, you know that that watch didn't just appear out of nothing. That atoms and molecules or proteins or um, possible particles didn't just come together and create something out of nothing that there was somebody who built that watch, who put that watch together. So the idea here is, 
in any um, illustration that we can come up with like this, that as we look out at the universe, the universe is the evidence, the creation is the evidence for a creator. Now, this is logically true, but it's also biblically true. Not as though those two are mutually exclusive, but we need to, to uh, delineate both. If we look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made. So they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Now, we can think about that futile in their speculations maybe in connection as an an example um, what we just saw. The speculation of scientists that want to divert from there being any evidence of God. If we look at Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them He has placed a tent for the sun, which is a bridegroom coming out of, its, of His chamber, it rejoices as a strong man to run his course. It rises, it's rising from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The heavens are telling of his glory. The creation is evidence of a creator. Now in Acts chapter 17, we see Paul um, evaluating this even further, unpacking this even further. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now, Paul is in a place here um, in Athens where they have many places to worship many different gods. And in order for them to not miss any, uh, just by ignorance, they place this, um, t- this altar with an inscription to the unknown God, to an unknown God, so that they don't miss any gods in their worship, right? Well, Paul wants to proclaim to them what they see in ignorance. He wants to proclaim to them so that they can come to know. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he has made, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations. Verse 27, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. For we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the thought of man, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Now look at verse 23 once again, the unknown God, and verse 27 here, 
that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. In general revelation, we begin to see not only the evidence of the Creator, but the evidence that the Creator desires for us to know Him. But the Creator goes further than this. Because we can't personally know Him simply by what He has made. But we can't know Him, a Creator such as this, without Him revealing Himself to us. This is what's called special revelation. The Creator is knowable and desires to be known. That's what we see there in chapter Acts chapter 17. That the reason he has done all these things is so that they might grope for him in the dark. So they might find him. They might come to know him. Specifically for our application, John says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. Through special revelation, through the scriptures, God desires us to come to know him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses verses 9 through 16, these verses figure prominently in uh, most of the teachings so far because they're so important, because they illustrate so many things, because they teach us, they show us so many things. In verse 9, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. But now, there's an issue here. Knowing about God is not the same as knowing God. Now, we can come to Bible class, and we can read our Bibles, and we can gather a whole lot of information. We can evaluate doctrine after doctrine, but unless we are coming to know God personally, unless we are growing, intimate, growing in our intimacy through that study of his word, we are not actually accomplishing the purpose of knowing him. All that we're doing is collecting facts. And this is something that we uh, see Jesus describe in John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40, saying to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, it is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. You see, the scriptures as the mind of Christ, as the um, expression of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, are leading us to the person of Christ. They're not an end in and of themselves. They're leading us to the person of Christ. This is the distinction that I made in previous classes, about 100% human and 100% divine. Now that is not just the person of Christ. That's the mind of Christ as well. That we have 100% divine inspiration and 100% human involvement. How does that work? 100 and 100 makes 200. Well, in different ways, they come together to make 100% again, right? There's nothing lacking in the human side. There's nothing lacking in the divine side. Okay? That's what we mean by 100% on each side. In John 14 and verse 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And again, we're illustrating here, and Jesus is illustrating, that... 
He's the truth. And the scripture is the expression of the truth, which is Jesus Christ. But we come to know the truth through the scriptures. Chapter 17 of the Gospel of John and verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is part of Jesus' high priestly prayer. Um, This is his desire for us. And this is a definition of eternal life, that we know the Father through the Son. So there are obvious steps here that we're looking at. The doorway into life is Jesus Christ. The doorway into understanding and knowing and being intimate with Jesus Christ is the Word. And through that intimacy of the living and written Word, we come to know the Father as well. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, nor let the mighty man boast of his might, nor let the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. We'll also look at Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God is not impressed with all the things that we do. He's not impressed by all the things that we can learn. He's impressed by his son. He's impressed with us because we are in his son. He is impressed with us when we are abiding in his son as an experience. So, knowing God, having facts, gathered facts about God, being able to spout off Bible verses, being able to uh, be the fastest person in the room at sword drills, that's not knowing God. That's not being intimate with God. That's involved. And I'm not saying that there's a problem with that. Of course there's not. But if that is the end in and of itself, that you're looking to gather facts and that's all you're doing, that you come to Bible class and you just take in information and there's nothing to it for you, then you're missing the point. You're missing the point. The first scripture that we looked at in this study was First uh, John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. And the end of that progression of maturity is that the fathers have come to know the one who is from the beginning, who John identifies as Jesus Christ. They have come to know the one who is from the beginning. The goal of our instruction, the goal of our, our, our uh, receiving instruction, is that we might come to know him in a greater way. That each time we sit down before the Bible, each time we come to Bible class, each time we fellowship with one another, that our intimacy and fellowship with him would be growing. As we consider that, as we keep that in our thinking, then we will begin to look at the uh, scriptures and have an introduction to biblical theology here. Introduction to biblical theology. Now let's define those terms. Everybody in the room knows what introduction is. Everybody in the room knows what biblical is. Okay, That means pertaining to the Bible. But theology here is is one of the terms that we're going to focus on because we have several areas of study that we're looking at. And each one of these areas of study has that ology ending. The theology in this case, theos is God, logos is the word or the message concerning. So we have, in this case, the study of God, okay? Literally the word about God. 
That's going to come up again as we look at uh, soteriology. Soter is the Greek word for salvation. Ology again, the word on, the message about. So we have a study of salvation. Okay? These are how we put these words together and understand them. And these words are going to be important for us as we move forward from a basic study into an intermediate study and an advanced study. This vocabulary is going to come in handy if you ever crack open uh, Lewis Berry Chafer's Systematic Theology. You will still need a dictionary next to you to look at many other words that we don't have time to go over, but uh, you'll be familiar with some of these theological terms already. Now, there are two difficult concepts in coming to know God. There's two extremely difficult concepts for the human mind, the finite mind. Did you get that? The finite mind? The first problem is God is infinite, and we are not. We are finite. So wrapping our minds around the infinite nature of God, that God has no beginning, has no ending, is some, somewhat difficult for us. Let's look at a couple of verses here. Psalm uh, chapter 90 and verse 2, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, for even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From eternity to eternity, even, you could think. This is olam, um, the Hebrew word that is translated here, everlasting. So you have an idea that God is already here, an idea that God is outside of his creation. That means outside of space and outside of time. Time and space are connected to each other. They're part of, of creation together. That the moment that God created the universe brought the universe into existence, time and space were brought together into existence together. Micah 5.2. This is one that I really love. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. Who's that? Yeah, Jesus. His going forth... His goings forth, goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Wait a minute. We all look at John chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3 for Jesus' uh, uh, deity, his eternal nature. I think that's a great passage we could uh, look at as well and take to folks like Jews, the Jewish folks, when we do our evangelism, as we look at passages with them like Isaiah 53 Look at passages like this as well. His goings forth are from long ago, the days of eternity, an expression of the eternal life that is in Jesus Christ. And Revelation 22 and verse 13. And there are many other verses that we could go to uh, in the scriptures to look at this concept. In uh, Revelation 22 verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now we see this phrase several times in the book of Revelation. And we see this as an identification, not only an identification of Jesus Christ, but an identification of Christ as equal with the Father. Okay? Because these things are said of the Father as well. What we're looking at here is the infinite nature of God, the Godhead. Okay? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we're going to talk about those things. But the infinite nature is hard for the finite mind to grasp that there is no beginning, that there is no ending, that uh, there is something beyond space and time that is 
that is being. The second concept, the difficult concept, which is probably more difficult for most of us, is Trinity. That God is, exists as one God and yet three persons. Now, I want, to, I want to be very specific about this because God does not reveal himself in contradiction. Three does not equal one. He is not three in the same sense as he is one. Think about it this way. A cannot be non-A at the same time, right? That wouldn't make any sense. Like crystal is not, or mom, I'm sorry. Mom is not mom and not mom at the same time, right? She's your mom. Does that make sense? Okay. So A is not non-A at the same time. But could something be A in one way and B in another way? That's what we're looking at. He is not one person and three people. He's one essence, one God. But he's three people, three persons. Okay? Those are two different things. So in this, in this understanding, we don't have a contradiction of being one and three of the same thing. We have one essence that is shared by three persons. That doesn't really make it any more simple to grasp. Still, how do you have even one essence that is shown in three separate, distinct persons? Well, we're going to look at this and see what the Bible describes, what the Bible teaches, what God himself reveals about his nature. First of all, God reveals himself as one God. The scripture reveals one God. This is called monotheism. Can you spot the theism part of that? Same word that we had before in theology. Okay, Mono is one, so one God. Monotheism is one God, or the belief in one God. This God is identified by name as Elohim, and he's introduced in the first verse, the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the word Elohim. This is the first name of God that we encounter in the text. The personal name of God is revealed, as well as the memorial name, to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and verses 14 through 15. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And the name he's referring to there isn't shown in our English text here because it's replaced with the word Lord. His memorial name, this is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations, is the those four letters, Y-H-W-H, that we usually pronounce Yahweh. This is the memorial name of God that comes from this I Am name up here. Okay? The name I Am speaks of his self-existence. It speaks of his eternity. So his memorial name, which is pulled out of that, still has the same idea. He is, and there is none like him. So if we want to think about this in English terms... His personal name is I Am. And the memorial name comes out of that. 
Now, the reason why we say Yahweh, and we're not very sure about the pronunciation of these four letters, this YHWH that you see here in, in Hebrew, is because there are different vowel pointings that are used in this word that are actually used for a different word. So this is where we get mistaken, uh, mistaken pronunciations like Jehovah because they didn't understand the vowel pointings at that, at that time, so they weren't pronouncing the word correctly. The Jews actually stopped pronouncing this word and began saying Adonai, or Lord, in place of the name of God, the memorial name of God. But this is a revelation of himself, of his self-existence, his eternality, his eternity, to the person of Moses and in turn to us, as we are reading it now. This name, Yahweh, is the most common name for God in the Old Testament where it appears over 6,800 times. Elohim, the word we looked at previously, which is just translated as God, right here. Elohim, a plural noun, is also widely used, appearing over 2,300 times in reference to the one true God. Now, Yahweh is God, and there is no other. This is what we see in Deuteronomy Chapter 4 and verses 35 through 39. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God. That is Yahweh, he is Elohim. There is no other besides him. Out of the heavens he let you hear his voice to discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire. And you heard his word from the midst of the fire. Because he loves your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. And they personally brought you from Egypt by his great power, driving out from before you the nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in and to give you their land for an inheritance as it is today. Know therefore today, verse 39, and take it to your heart that the Lord, Yahweh, he is Elohim, God. In heaven above and on earth below, there is no other. These are proclamations of monotheism. These are proclamations of there being one true God. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, this is called the Shema for the Israelites. It's called Shema because of that first word. That's the Hebrew word that we translate here. Okay? Hear, O Israel, the Lord Yahweh is our Elohim. Yahweh is our Elohim. Yahweh is one. That one, that word one right there, is very specific. The word that's used here, echad, the Hebrew word, can be um, used in, in, the, in the place of the number one, but it can also be used for a unity. As a matter of fact, this morning we looked at a passage during Jeremiah that spoke of this very thing. When the Israelites were faced with the decision to accept the covenant or not, they all proclaimed with one voice. Does that... Does that Makes sense to you of the unity of their voice rather than a single voice? It's used, it can be used both ways, and the context determines that. But there is an idea within the word of unity. Other applicable passages would include Deuteronomy 32 39. See now that I, I am He, there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. 
Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven and say, As I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries, and I will repay those who hate me. In Isaiah chapter 43, verses 10 through 12, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It's also an interesting place for the word Savior. Save that for another time. And Isaiah chapter 44 and verse six, verses 6 through 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer. Are those two separate people? The Lord of hosts. Let's read that again. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and the last, and there is no God besides me. You can move on through 7 and 8, I guess, there. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount, recount it to me in order. From the time that I established the ancient nation, and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Or is there any other rock? Is there any other God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. When God says he knows of none other, since he knows everything, he's probably right, huh? Verse uh, 8 and 9. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Moving on to the New Testament, we would see in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 4, therefore concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know, Paul says, that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And, no, and, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. That's going to be another passage we come back to. There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ. These are one of, this is one of the passages that we'll look at as far as the uh, identification of the three persons of the Godhead. And finally, James chapter 2 and verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well, the demons also believe and shudder. So throughout the scriptures we have this declaration that God is one, that there is one true God, even if there are other so-called gods and other so-called lords, that these are false gods, these are created beings, or these are pieces of wood that are nailed to their, to their place, otherwise they would fall over, that there is one God in this universe. There is one God who created this entire universe, one God who uh, brought Jesus Christ uh, to us. So understanding that concept, that there is one God, one essence, 
Now we move to the three people, the three persons that are identified within that essence. They all share the same um, essence and attributes together. And we'll go over that actually next week. We're going to look at personality and essence and attributes next week. The whole of Scripture declares one God who is eternal, self-existent, uncreated. Yet God reveals himself as three distinct persons who have equal claim to the same essence and attributes. All three share one name. In Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus says to his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That single name for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The apostles speak of the Father, the Son, and Spirit cooperating to redeem a people for themselves. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we said here, the apostles speak of the Father, Son, and Spirit cooperating to redeem a people for themselves. Let's look at this again. We give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. Okay, so now we have God, the Father, and the Spirit, and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you, the Father, through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit here in cooperation for our redemption. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, according to the foreknowledge, let's back up a little bit, to those who reside as aliens scattered through, throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Well, let's go back here. The apostles speak of Father, Son, and Spirit cooperating to redeem a people for themselves. We see according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Those three, okay? Any questions so far? No? Are we moving too fast? Everybody get, catching everything? The Logos was face-to-face -face with God, yet was also God, showing a distinction, yet also a unity. Now we're looking at John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Now I want to read this for you, so as we, just like we did with the last one, as we read through the verse, we're thinking of these things. The Logos was face-to-face -face with God. The term that is used there, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. This is the word for toward in Greek. It's pros. So the Word was toward God. This speaks of the intimacy, the face-to-face -face intimacy with God the Father. 
So the Logos was face to face with God, and yet was also God. Let's look what it says. It says, In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God, was toward God, was face to face with God, and the Word was God. It's both. So there is a distinction to be seen here of an identification of the Word as being God, as being deity, but also that He is face to face with deity as well. He was in the beginning with God. The Logos was face to face with God, yet was also God, showing a distinction, yet also a unity. Here we see eternality, that means an eternal nature of the Logos, Jesus Christ, creative power in this chapter, in these few verses, and self-existence attributed to the Logos, who is Jesus. Here we see eternality, creative power, and self-existence attributed to the Logos, who is Jesus. Let's look at it again, verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, that intimacy, that face-to-face intimacy, and the Word was God, identification of, of deity, that the Word, the Logos, Jesus Christ, is God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. The Logos has creative power, has brought everything into existence. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And there's a speaking of the eternal life that is in Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 8, getting tired? This is the worst class to teach right after a potluck, because everybody's tired. We don't have much longer to go. There's the end of the notes. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, Paul affirms the oneness of God, yet ascribes deity to Christ. He distinguishes between the Father and the Son, and he notes that all things are from the Father and through, the, and through Christ, and that we exist for the Father and through the Son. So let's look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods... Whether in heaven or on earth, indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things are, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. We were in this passage just a few minutes ago, but now we're covering something else. So we didn't want to double up when we're looking at the passage, we want to focus on the thing that we're looking at. So in in this time around... We're looking at Paul affirming the oneness of God and yet ascribing deity to Christ and distinguishing between the Father and the Son. He notes that all things are from the Father and through Christ and that we exist for the Father and through the Son. He says, yet for us, in verse 6, there is one God, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist 
through him. Okay? So, the affirmation of the oneness of God and yet the identity of Jesus Christ as part of that Godhead, as deity. And specifically, that uh, each part of that Godhead, each person of that Godhead, has specific uh, activity. In this case, it is the Father that all things come from, but it is the Son by whom all things are brought into existence, including us. We exist through Him. In John's Gospel, Jesus makes a number of I am statements. I am the bread of life. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And even just the plain I am. We'll look at each one of these that I've listed here. This isn't all of them. But let's look at uh, um, John, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 6 and verse 48. In all of these I am statements, do you remember in Exodus chapter 3, when God introduces himself to Moses with his personal name and his memorial name, what is that name that appears in English, in your English Bibles? What, what, what's the name? I am. That's right. I am. Speaking of that self-existence, right? The self-existence, the eternality, that God is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. So do you think that phrase, I am, is going to continue to have significance, even in the New Testament? That when Jesus uses this phrase, it's going to mean more to somebody who knows that God's name is I am. He says, I am the bread of life in John 6, 48. In John 8, 58, and I put these in order as they appear in in the Gospel of John, not not particularly in the order of their power. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, he didn't say I was. In his argument here with the the Pharisees, he doesn't say before Abraham was born, I was, as though he's lived that long. He's being very specific. He's making a claim to eternality, which is making a claim to deity, making a claim to be equal with the Father. He says, before Abraham was, before Abraham was born, I am. Let's look at a couple of others. In uh, John 10, verse 7, he says, I am the door. In uh, 14.6 that we've already looked at, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, my favorite here is in John chapter 18. This is uh, as uh, the uh, guards are coming to uh, get him from the uh, garden here that uh, they ask... Jesus says to them, whom do you seek? And they answer him and said, Jesus the Nazarene. He says to them, now the text says, I am he here. The words in Greek are ego emi, I am, literally I am. And they're adding in here the idea of he from this, but given the context of the whole gospel of John, Jesus is obviously making the same statement here and using the same words that he used previously. They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he, or I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. Now here's the the, the fun part. This is the part that I like the most. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. 
These are soldiers of Rome. These are tough guys. And just hearing Jesus himself speak, I am, they draw back, back and fall to the ground. I think that's an incredible statement, um, an incredible illustration of the power of that statement. That he is stating much more than just recognizing that he's the person they're looking for. The last two points here are about the Holy Spirit. About the Holy Spirit. Because we're identifying throughout this, these eight points, that the three persons that we're looking at, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that the Scripture identifies them as God. This is, this is one of the biggest arguments that you'll find from Bible skeptics, is they will claim nowhere in Scripture does Jesus Christ proclaim that he is God. Now, we didn't even look at all the passages that we could have, where Jesus Christ calls himself the Son of God, where Jesus Christ here we're looking at calls himself the I Am, the self-existent one, that we could provide countless verses where Jesus proclaims that he is God, that he is deity. So the skeptic says nowhere in the Bible does Jesus Christ proclaim to be God. And yet we're looking at the scriptures and being convinced by them, not by Bible skeptics, not by um, arguments and all that nonsense. We've established throughout this study that the scriptures, what the scriptures are, where they come from, what the origin is, and that they are trustworthy, that they are eyewitness testimony. And so as they describe these events and describe the person and work of Jesus Christ, this is the thing that got it for me. This is the thing that turned, turned my eyes around to Jesus Christ, is that if the scriptures are true, and they were proven to be to me, then what they say about Jesus Christ and what they proclaim that Jesus himself said is extremely important. So here we have these very few proclamations of the identity of Jesus Christ from the scriptures, the identity of the Father, and now the identity of the Holy Spirit. Because... There are some folks who would say that the Holy Spirit is, an, is not a person, but something else like an emanation. But if the scriptures themselves identify the Spirit as a separate person, I think that's more significant than uh, any kind of reasoning from folks who aren't even reading the Bible. If we're looking at uh, um, verses like Acts chapter 5, and I just thought of another one that I'd, I'd want to go to as well, but I didn't write it down here in the notes. And we've got time. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, the husband and wife, um, decide that they are going to, as everybody else is selling their property and, bring, and selling their possessions and bringing the proceeds to the apostles' feet, um, they decide they're going to sell a piece of property that, that they own, but they're going to keep back some of the price for themselves. Now, that in itself isn't the problem. And Peter's going to to proclaim that. While it was in your possession, didn't you have control over it? It's not that you wanted to keep some for yourself. It's something very specific, something much worse than any of that that we could think of. But a a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet, bringing a portion of it. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? 
Here's the thing. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied. There's the problem. You have not lied to men, but to God. Now, who's he lying to? Who's Ananias lying to? Verse 3. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? There's a direct identification here of the Holy Spirit as God, that you have not lied to men but to God. If we look at God, God's attributes of omniscience and omnipresence, and those we will take a good look at next week, omniscience is that God knows everything. There is no knowledge that is hidden from God's sight. And that doesn't just mean, and we will talk more about this next week, that God knows everything that will happen. He knows everything that might happen. He knows that given a set of circumstances, something could happen, but he also knows that those circumstances won't come about. Now, all of that said, there is nothing hidden from God's sight. There's nothing he doesn't know. He knows the possibilities and he knows the actualities, the things that actually do occur. The omnipresence of God speaks to his being everywhere, okay? Not only his everywhere, but I think you could include in this his every when. And we'll talk about that next week too. That God permeates all of his creation. God in his omniscience knows all things, but in his omnipresence he is all places as well. He can see anywhere. We're going to look at Psalm 139, which is my my favorite place to uh, discuss that particular topic. But first, the omniscience, that God knows everything. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, we already saw this. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, the things that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, has not entered into the heart of man, all these that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Omnipresence, that idea that God is everywhere and every when, in, in Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before, and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Now, here's the important verses. Verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. The Spirit of God and, the, and God the Father, the Holy Spirit and God the Father, have omniscience and omnipresence. They share that as part of the essence of the Godhead. We'll talk more about that next week. Now, are there any questions? Yes, sir. Oh, microphone. It, no, it's not okay. It has to be on the MP3. So folks know what you're asking. It can't be secret. In Acts chapter 5... 
if Ananias was not required to sell the property and give it all to charity, or if he did sell it, he was still not required to give it all to charity, what was the lie that he told to the Holy Spirit? That this was the full price. If we go on in the story, the same thing occurs with Sapphira, that she's confronted with the same thing. Was this the price you sold the land for? And she says, yeah, that's the price. More to it? Any other questions? Okay. I appreciated that Isaiah reference about I know of none. Mm-hmm. That in order to be an atheist, you have to have omniscience. Mm-hmm. And if you have omniscience, you've just disproven atheism. That's right. <laughs> That's why I don't believe in atheists. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Almighty Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, for revealing yourself to us through your word. And Father, we pray that you would uh, place this on our hearts even more deeply today, that uh, through your word, that we come to know you, come to understand you, that your Holy Spirit guides and directs all that we, uh, all that we study, all that we uh, know, and all that we understand about you. That, Father, we would submit to you for all of these things, that we would re- indeed rejoice in these things, desiring to know you more today than we did yesterday, that our delight is in you, And we know that when we delight in you, you give us the desire of our hearts, which is more of you. I thank you, Father, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.